Hello, Hoopaholics. It's Coach Spins here from the Box and One. I got an awesome episode today. I uh, can't lie. This is one that I've been waiting for for a few days now since uh, Derek Parker, who's our guest today, and I were, were really going over the outline. I think it's going to be uh, a really fun episode about roster building in the modern NBA. Now that we're here in the playoffs, going to really dive into what makes playoff basketball so special and what can preparing your team for playoff success really tell us about the pre-draft process and scouting, trying to illuminate and unearth some of the, the right things that teams should be focusing on to set themselves up to have success in April, May, and June long-term. Derek, it's great to have you as a first-time guest here on the podcast. How are you doing, my friend? I am doing great. It's great to be here. I'm pretty much perpetually trying not to get blown away in the Oklahoma wind, so that's my current state, but it's good. Busy time of the year. I'm, I'm stoked to to be here. Yeah, busy time of the year. And, and for all of our, our listeners and followers out there who don't follow Derek online, please make sure you go and do so. Tons of great draft content and breakdowns on his YouTube channel that he's starting to, to really get up there. Does a great job covering the Oklahoma City Thunder and, and has a very unbiased and nuanced perspective that he brings uh, with that. So I'm part of the reason we're going to have Derek here today to, to talk about this topic is because he both covers the draft and, and prospects from a, a a very enlightened perspective, but also one of the most uniquely built rosters in the NBA that I think, and maybe this is me projecting forward, is really going to be built well for playoff success. So trying to mirror what we see in Oklahoma City with a lot of other teams around the league. But before we get there, it's time for my pregame speech. And this is one that I'm a little bit fired up about today, because as the playoffs have started, we have actually seen the worst of sports media whether that's social media or those who have their, their soapboxes on television and, and other different platforms. Uh, the playoffs reveal the best and the worst parts of players. And guys have great performances and they have struggling performances. But by no means is the hot take reactionary media aspect that throws a lot of these guys under the bus, that really puts these bold out of left field terms in place None of that is ever deserved. Calling James Harden a glorified role player, calling Jordan Poole bad at basketball. I don't swear very much on the pod, but I'm fucking furious when I hear a lot of these things because basketball is so damn hard. And to have one bad game and be picked apart in the national media like this is so undeserving for these guys who sacrifice more than anybody in the media and anybody else ever sees with some of these players, the amount of work that goes into being a professional and an elite NBA player to even sniff the floor in a playoff game. It's so disrespectful to them, to everyone around them and the support system that goes into it. You want to know why players are starting to push back sometimes on wanting to lay their bodies out there and play full 82 game seasons and do all of these open, honest interviews and media's coverages after games. It's because the shit like this happens afterwards that we've got people who just want to stand up there and throw hot take after hot take because they know it's going to get them more traffic and view on their own page. If you have a platform, use it responsibly and understand that our job is always to build up players and try to see the best ways that we can utilize them or that they can be the best versions of themselves, not to tear them down and try to feel like the bigger man. Shit pisses me off. Yeah, I think you said it best in your tweet. There are avenues here to like, like you're not going to like every performance. You're not going to like every player, but there's avenues here around that to where you can kind of harp on them without really 
really being <laughs> nasty and mean. And even the, the Russell Westbrook video the other day with the fans talking to him, I'm by no means a Russell Westbrook fan. Even being from Oklahoma was never my favorite guy. But people talk to these guys like they're caricatures and they're not real people. It, it's infuriating. It's even more infuriating when, when the base that's supposed to be growing the game does it too. And it, it's just, it's a problem. It is. You want to know why people who go to games and in stadiums are heckling and, and acting the way towards players that they are off the court or even on it? It's because they see that perpetuated in the media and they think that it's okay. We've got to stop that. We all have a collective responsibility to elevate the game and elevate the players in it, not tear them down for our own selfish game. But you know what, Derek? That's that's enough of the negative today because like, I should be in a really good mood. Playoff basketball is here. This is what we cover the NBA for an entire 82-game season for. And starting last week with the play-in games, the intensity ratcheted up a whole nother level. And with that, it has illuminated so many different things about roster building in the NBA. I've long believed that when you draft, you draft for postseason success. And with this increased intensity and the change of competitiveness, some guys' roles in the rotation have changed, whether it's in crunch time of game situations when seasons are on the line, based on ways that opponents kind of play them and how they match up. It reveals a lot about versatility. It reveals a lot about value. And Derek and I want to go into some of our observations from the opening week of play-in and play-off games for what we've noticed. And, and I think the great spot to start, to start here, Derek, is with Oklahoma City and the way that they're kind of building this roster and the model that they've set forth because no team defied expectations this year like the Thunder did, predicted to be one of the worst in the league, particularly after Chet Holmgren suffered his season-ending injury over the summer, and they make it all the way to the play-in game and within about 48 minutes of getting to a full postseason series. By my vantage point here, please correct me if you see something differently because you cover the team so much more closely than I do. The Thunder have really built this team on a model of first and foremost, value and character. Secondly, high IQ players with a really quick processing speed. And I think IQ and processing speed are a little bit different that uh, you can have really high IQ and still be a slower basketball player and need patience and time to to make your decisions. But they value that quick decision making to go with it. I think third is positional size and length. They want guys who are really long-armed who can be bigger than a lot of their players because it gives them both defensive impact and defensive versatility. And then fourth, in order to tie it all together, they need three-point shooting. Some guys who can play off ball and get all of the pieces to fit. It seems like Oklahoma City's organization believes this is the most teachable or correctable over the long term. So what did I get right there? What did I get wrong? What else do you see from how the Thunder are trying to build this roster for modern playoff success? No, I I think you absolutely nailed it right down to character being first and foremost. Like it's not often you see front offices have something that is not even on court related as their top priority in a draft, but that's like probably what I would say is their top priority, which is so weird to think about. They, it's just uncanny that they've built the roster. Like you said, moving the way it is towards the future, being one of the better rebuilds in the entire NBA and the first thing that they're prioritizing is just having good people in the locker room. Like that, I, that's almost unheard of. So, no, I think you nailed it. The high IQ, quick processing speed, positional size, length, all of it. 
I think three-point shooting is probably what they lack the most. If they hadn't hit on Isaiah Joe in the preseason, I think we probably would have seen quite a different product, but they did. So who knows what their path forward is? You know, I, I believe in too many cooks in the kitchen. So do they continue to, to go after these things? I don't know. Do, do they have a change in philosophy overnight? Probably not. But no, I think you nailed it. Well, in long term, if you look at the future here, they have such a stockpile of draft picks and assets that they can really maneuver around that long term, it's going to put us at a flexion point where we've got to see can they just keep adding these tall, rangy, like positionally big, essentially point guards that they're playing one through three? Can they find enough shooting around it? And what do they do with those big positions? Because Chet Holmgren is a really unique type of player. Can they find another guy like him? And what does this roster look like moving forward if they can do that? So, you know, I, I think Presti has been really smart with how he's trying to build this group and value all of the things that he has. And hopefully through this conversation that we have today about our observations over the last week, just league-wide, we'll be able to eliminate why both you and I believe Oklahoma City is in such a really good position long-term. Are there any other teams who are outside of the playoff picture this year who you see being really intriguing kind of long-term with how they're modeling their rebuild or or what they have piecewise to be able to eventually become one of these impactful playoff teams? I think the Magic probably stand out the most in that regard. It's almost kind of the light version of what the Thunder are building with this forward-driven team. Uh, Outside of them, the Pistons with some luck this year get really interesting. I mean, they have a lot of talent. I'm not sure how it fits together, but that was Oklahoma City's problem two years ago, too. They had a ton of talent, and on paper, the fit was weird. And now, do we question the fit at all? Like, So Houston Houston just is – I don't know what to think about Houston – yeah, but, there's, uh, a, there's a lot of mismatched pieces in, in Houston right now. <laughs> yeah, Houston, Indiana's fun. You know, I think they have great pieces that do fit together, but they're almost at this in-between kind of limbo phase where how are they going to add talent to that? So yeah. the, the rebuilds across the NBA right now are just phenomenal. It's so fun to keep up with all of them. It, it speaks to the level of talent that's in the league right now and how many intriguing young players there are who – come into the NBA, not just ready to to contribute, but who have that unique blend of size and skill that now more than ever, and that's due largely to getting away from position-based basketball over the last decade to AAU and skill development year round, where guys come in much more polished in different areas as teenagers than they ever were. There's still a learning curve to get to the higher levels of the NBA, but I think the baseline of talent and unique intersection of size and skill is greater than we've seen really at any time in the history of the game right now. So what we're going to do, Derek, is going to go through just a couple different observations or skills that we've seen on display through the first weekend and try to see what that can reveal about the NBA draft and about how teams should be drafting, what types of players or impacts they should be prioritizing when fitting it all together. And over the weekend, I got the idea for this kind of conversation through watching game one of the Sacramento Kings and Golden State Warriors. And there was a play in the first quarter when Kevin Herter was trying to come off of a handoff from Demonis Sabonis, who's on the, the right side of the floor. And Golden State was doing their best to try to deny Herter that ball. So instead of curling over the top for that handoff, he goes almost back door towards the corner. Like he's refusing that screen. Sabonis hits him over the top. And 
as Sabonis starts to roll towards the basket, Kevin Herter makes an instinctual play to just give a one-hand skip pass to the opposite corner. And the reason this stood out to me so much, I know Kevin Herter has a really good feel for the game. It is an underrated passer in the league. It's not like this is a skill that we've never seen before from a guy like him. But he is predominantly used as a movement shooting threat. And I think what I learned from seeing this is the value of having five guys on the floor at the same time who all have really high feel, that quick processing speed that we mentioned a little bit earlier, because in the playoffs, the windows to take advantage of scrambled or mismatched defenses are really small. Guys try a little bit harder. They rotate very quickly on the defensive end to to take away some of those skip passes and, and rotations. You've got to be so, so smart to be able to exploit them as they're happening. And, and one thing as a coach, I know we talk about with our team, we talk about a lot at the college level. It's not just a, it's pretty pervasive at this point, is the 0.5 second rule. That anytime you catch the basketball, particularly if it comes inside to out, you have less than a full second. You have 0.5 seconds to make a decision with what you're going to do. You can shoot it, you can drive it, or you can throw an extra pass and one more. And the best teams and the best offenses are filled with smart, instinctual, high IQ players who can pass, dribble, or shoot, but who make the right decision time and time again. And I think what the Kings have done this year is really value having five guys on the floor at the same time who can not just create those scrambles by being able to put pressure on the rim or having an intricate offense, but when the ball gets swung around and kicked out, are they going to make the right decision with whether to to repenetrate or attack nine times out of 10? And and that's where I've fallen in love with the Kings this year is they're unselfish. They move it and they make the right decision. sounds like Oklahoma city is kind of built on that same, uh, same mantle as well. Have you noticed any other teams or situations around the postseason where things like that are happening and, and really trying to exploit those windows as small as they might be? I think the Celtics stand out a ton in that, you know, having Derek white, playing 39 minutes a night is no accident. I mean, that entire team is smart. It it feels like Oklahoma City kind of saw this trend a while ago and decided to go that route. NBA teams all over the – there's 29 other NBA teams alongside the Kings that that want exactly everything you were talking about from Kevin Herter out in that play. So, I mean, everybody wants it. And, you know, that Sacramento Golden State series is interesting because you can see the dichotomy of a guy like Herter who throws a lot of those passes, knows his value as a shooter, but is a really sound decision maker. I don't think he forces much on the offensive end of the floor, and he is capable of making proactive reads. Jordan Poole for Golden State, much more talented of a scorer with the ball in his hands, can get lightning hot from three. But you also have already felt in the first two games of this Kings Warriors series some of the subpar decision making, some of the inaccurate passing that he'll throw on the weak side. The ball can stick to his hands sometimes, or he doesn't always instinctually know how to play off of some other guys. That impact is felt. Yeah, I feel it through the screen when you're watching the Warriors try to take advantage of some of those plays. And, you know, the Sacramento Kings should be lauded for all that they have done to get De'Aaron Fox and Demonis Sabonis onto all NBA levels this year. I think that Mike Brown has done a great job at the top of his 
you know, play construction and the roster building that they've put together to really do the most to, to get those two guys to star levels. But man, has Mike Brown done an unbelievable job of using guys like Kevin Herter, of putting Malik Monk and Alex Len, all of these retreads from around the league in spots to really preserve their careers and, and make a, a positive impact. I think it comes down to general ball movement and flow and, and the unselfishness of Golden State, of Sacramento, of Boston, of Oklahoma City to some degree. Like it's fun basketball to watch. It's great exploitation of mismatches and the fact that whoever creates them, it doesn't necessarily matter who shoots the ball. The ball's just going to find the right guy, and that's going to tell us who should shoot on that possession. Those are the fun teams to watch and really the fun teams to play for. Yeah, I agree. And kind of to piggyback off that to my first point, the one thing that I think stands out to me the most is simply the speed at which the game is being played. Couple that with what you touched on earlier, the intensity, the competitiveness. It's just really hard for some of these guys to keep up. The margin for error is minute. It's like those weirdos who listen to podcasts on like one and a half times speed. (laughs) That's like watching playoff basketball from a strategy standpoint right now, even if it might not look like it from a broad perspective. And I don't think any singular skill or trait lends itself better to that style than having high basketball IQ. And to kind of bring that back around to my thunder knowledge, that's the kind of guys that, that OKC has sought in these last few drafts. And I think it's a major reason why they've overachieved the way they did this season and eventually won a play-in game like we talked about. Yes, they were the youngest team in the NBA, but these guys, Josh Giddy, Jalen Williams, SGA, they've never fit perfect on paper, but they're guys that I think widen that margin for error and, and for the most point, just don't allow the game to speed up around them. So I think high basketball IQ, and like you talked about, that and processing are not the same. High basketball IQ is at a premium right now, and it's always going to give certain prospects a massive edge for me and probably front offices too. Yeah, totally agree. And I think that's where I'm evolving as a scout, to be honest with you, is seeing games like this and starting to really watch the college tape a little more closely and say, okay, who's a guy who's just going to make the right extra pass? Who's a guy who catches it and knows exactly what he's going to do when he catches the ball? Who's capable of not just knocking down that shot but getting into the lane and making the right decision when he's attacking closeouts, looking a lot more at guys who extend advantages as opposed to just creating them on the offensive end of the floor. So uh, I think that's a, a great starting point for this conversation. Want to move to a second point here, which is on the, the opposite end of the floor. Uh, and it has to do more with something that we see throughout the course of a best of seven series. It's cross matching on the defensive end that when you get into a playoff series teams value being able to in particular throw bigger bodies and defensive minded wings at smaller guards we saw that in the lakers grizzlies series with jared vanderbilt going up against john morant a little bit more we've seen it with isaac okoro trying to guard jalen brunson in the Knicks series it's a very common tactic that teams have done before i remember years ago when the Wizards and Celtics met in the first round of an NBA playoffs and, you know, each team we're talking about, they're going to have a funeral for each other, all wearing all black and that stuff. I think it was like 2018, 2019, something like that. And Kelly Oubre really caught my eye because he did a really nice job of sliding with the Celtics guards in the backcourt and picking up with their full court pressure. It's a, a common strategy that we see with cross matching, but the way that rosters are built either enable or prevent that cross-matching from being really successful. So 
Smaller guards obviously prevent that type of lineup flexibility on the defensive end. If you have a bigger wing that you slide down to, to play on an opposing guard, you still got to do something with your smaller guard on the defensive end. And that ends up being the first reason that teams can't necessarily cross matches. They don't have enough roster flexibility with the five guys that they need on the floor in order to hide their smallest or weakest guys. On the offensive end of the floor, the smaller guys who get cross-matched against probably need to have elite athleticism and quickness to be able to overcome that. I, I view those guys as, I call it, no-screen paint touches, right? The guys who can just get past a bigger, longer, stronger athlete or defender without needing a screen that can be switched, that can throw different defenders in the equation. Those guys tend to be okay and fare pretty well, even against those cross-matches. So that can be it a cross match deterrent in some regard. But on the offensive side, you also need to have a, a player on your floor who you can't have the opposing team hide their weakest defender on. And that's where this really comes down to me is it, the value of having five really good floor spacers and ball movers like we just talked about in that section of processing speed prevents a weak link on the defensive end to be hidden somewhere while the defense is trying to cross match and exploit that advantage. Uh, where are you at right now on kind of the, the smaller guard equation? Because we've obviously seen Oklahoma City go large positionally, but I think that this is one of the areas where we're starting to see when we get into the playoffs, smaller guys either get played off the court or kind of hamstring their team in terms of what types of matchups and schemes they can play. You know, I'm I'm pretty unhappy to be having this conversation amidst short king spring. You know, I'm I'm five six. <laughs> I'm a short king myself. It's tough to have this, but I mean, we see it time and time again. These guys, like you talk about, are just at a huge disadvantage. They just yeah. are. Positional length has never been more prevalent in the NBA, and you see it every year. Guys like Kennedy Chandler has already been released. He, I was a guy I was huge on, but this is the NBA playoffs, and every single thing about your game is going to be exploitable in some way, shape, or form. So it's tough. It's tough to have smaller guards on your roster, period. Well, the guys who are staying on the floor and overcoming that, I think Jalen Brunson is a big guard in terms of his physical stature. He plays big because he's super strong. He's patient, and he never gets sped up by guys. John Moran, obviously, is a freak athlete in that regard. De'Aaron Fox, again, one of those – no screen paint touches, guys. I'd, I'd call John Morant. I'd call De'Aaron Fox, probably two of the premier non-screen paint touch guys in the entire league. But what other smaller guards are really prevalently out there right now? I mean, Cleveland has Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell, but they have two trees on their back line and have really played a two-big lineup to try to counteract that. They're a very unique roster build in that regard. Boston, huge. Los Angeles Lakers, fairly big. D'Angelo Russell and Austin Reeves are kind of bigger guards, so to speak. A lot of the teams that are still around have that real positional size to it. I don't think that's a coincidence anymore. Yeah, I'd agree. So when it comes down to cross-matching, teams are valuing wings who might be able to go out there and hound opposing guards at the point of attack. This is, by my vantage point in a best of seven series not just about getting more length 
on the opposing guards at the point of attack. It's also about preventing your lead initiator and backcourt guy from having to guard ball screens for 30 to 40 minutes a night. Because you can really wear down if you're asked to do a ton of things on the offensive end of the floor and be the number one guy, like Donovan Mitchell is for the Cavs. If you have to go on the other end of the floor and chase and guard Jalen Brunson around screens and try to battle with him physically, part of the value that Isaac Okoro brings to Cleveland is preventing Donovan Mitchell from having to take that assignment every single possession throughout the game. So I think there is real value in what we've seen for many years now, which is the the importance of switchable wings and guys who have real length to hound at the point of attack. Uh, but I also think that it, it's about the overall roster construction to fit these guys together, right? Do you have enough size on the back line to prevent any mismatches that could come from where you hide your smaller defender? And is your opponent going to have a real convenient piece in place for you to hide that smaller defender? So uh, it's all really related when it comes to roster building, unsurprisingly. For my second point... One thing I think about a lot draft-wise is this kind of subplot that the draft space is going through regarding cerebral-style play versus like pure athleticism. Some people really value that high-feel, pick-you-apart guy, and others really value these hyper-athlete guys that simply have skills others don't. And if you've got any semblance of both, congrats. You're a top-five pick, i.e. Scoot Henderson, Amen Thompson, take your pick. But to me, when I watch the playoffs, I almost wonder if we don't overrate athleticism ever so slightly, you know, we, we both just talked about the speed of it and how small these windows are. How do the playoffs not lend themselves more to a cerebral style of basketball? Not to say that athleticism isn't a huge part of the game too, but how much does a, a first step and athletic based creation ability truly matter when the stars have the gravity that they do now creating double teams and, and whatnot. So to, to put a physical example to it, when you're looking at a guy like Cam Whitmore versus Anthony Black, for all his strengths, it's really hard for me to envision Whitmore knowing only the things we know right now, having more success from a playoff perspective than an Anthony Black or a Jarris Walker, etc. And there's a million examples of this throughout the 2023 draft and more, but my overarching point is that athleticism or tools can't be the end-all be-all prospects have to bring more than that to the table now because they're not only entering another echelon of athleticism, they're entering a new tier of basketball knowledge too. Really well said, Derek. Really, really well said with that point. And look, there are guys who are non-elite athletes who tend to create a lot of that space for themselves. We mentioned Jalen Brunson for the Knicks being one of those guys. Like, it's funny. I watch a lot of Celtics basketball. Jason Tatum is big and he's really skilled with with his handle. I don't think of him as an elite athlete. I just think of him as a guy who really knows how to leverage his strengths and sell the threat of his pull-up shot at all times to be able to get to where he wants to go. And believe me, it has been a struggle getting him to, to apply consistent rim pressure over the first several years of his career. He didn't really do it until a season ago when Ime Yudoka took over. And he started to prioritize that part of his game a little bit more. There are countless examples of that. And and skill is really valuable. But I think tied into that point is in order to collapse a defense, it really only takes one guy. And in the playoffs, if you've got 
a litany of different sets and different actions to be able to leverage that one person free, then the rest of the collective around him has to be those advantage sustainers, not necessarily advantage creators. So I think it's a great point when it comes to Cam Whitmore. Uh, obviously, I have been uh, very closely involved with Whitmore, having coached against him when he was in high school and seen him, for lack of a better term, uh, yam on our guys way too much in person. He's a freak athlete, but the feel is very concerningly low for a guy like him. And that's something that we're going to have to grapple with throughout the rest of this pre-draft process is, like you said, those intersection guys who have both elite athletic tools and feel, they're always going to go at the top. But what do you prioritize in that next tier? It goes hand in hand with a question that I've been wrestling with for a long period of time. And I think people way smarter than me are the only ones that can weigh in on this. Can you teach feel? Can you develop IQ and enough processing speed over time to turn yourself into somebody who can sustain those advantages on a really reliable basis the way that we need in the playoffs. That's a great point you brought up there, Derek. So as I'm looking forward here and we're trying to talk about those advantage creators, I'm looking at this idea of trapping those best players in the postseason, right? That Joel Embiid has commanded a double team almost every time he touches the damn ball on the blocks against the Brooklyn Nets. That in the play-in game, Shea Gilgis-Alexander was getting trapped for the Oklahoma City Thunder. That I would expect moving forward in the Knicks-Cavs series after Donovan Mitchell blew up in game one, that the Knicks maybe start to send a little bit more pressure and double teaming and traps him. How many times have we seen Damian Lillard in the playoffs get trapped as soon as he crosses half court over the past several years that the best players command extra attention and oftentimes get two players swarmed to them. So this point number three is purely from a roster building and construction standpoint, not necessarily as much about micro skills, but it's, having a very simple and organized plan of attack when your lead player gets swarmed and and adds that extra attention. For guards, it ends up being really the most important to to surround them with the right talent. But I'll I'll get to that in a second. I want to start with Philly because what they've done this year to keep the the floor well-spread and the game very simple for Joel Embiid is directly translating to playoff success. There's nothing too complicated that they do. They throw the ball into the post with him. They understand that he demands a double team because he's too talented to to be left alone in one-on-one coverage. But they shot 38.7% from three this year, which was tops in the league. They've got Harden, Maxi, Tobias Harris, P.J. Tucker, George Niang, uh, D'Anthony Melton. They're all over 38% from three on the season. And I think one of the reasons they got rid of Matisse Thibel is because while he can help on the defensive end of the floor, he ends up being a weak spot that you can help off of or ignore on the perimeter when the defense is in rotation. And now the game is very, very simple. Through two games in the playoffs, Joel Embiid's got 10 assists, countless other hockey assists because guys just swing the ball around the perimeter. If you've got one great scoring option who can not just create that advantage, but force multiple defenders to come to him, you better have a really simple plan for being able to, to exploit that advantage. And for guards, it's, it's even simpler. When you get trapped above the three-point line, hit a pocket pass to a really good short roll creator, 
and then win that advantage four on three in the lane. And I was really pleased with Jalen Williams, Jalen Williams, Arkansas, of course, for the Oklahoma City Thunder, who made countless really good plays in short roll positions in those play-in games and had, I believe, eight assists and no turnovers in their first game against New Orleans. Uh, you know, what, what are your thoughts right now on kind of drafting for success? I know we, we talk a lot about best player available versus fit for teams, right? But when you have that pristine advantage creator, does fit or understanding the pieces around him in order to exploit these double teams and advantages make more sense for an organization as opposed to just taking best kind of guy available? I think absolutely. It, it depends what state your franchise is in. You know, if if there's a team that's really not close at all and you you draft for fit, but then the short roll guy can't get it to anyone who's going to score, then it's not going to matter a ton. So there, there's kind of a give and take between best player available and fit. I would pose the question to you because just going back to Oklahoma City, the answer for Philadelphia was surround Joel Embiid with shooters. Oklahoma City hasn't done that with Shea. And really, Jalen Williams, Arkansas, has not, has not been a huge part of the offense up until that point. That was really a, a Mark Dignall thing that they brought out. Can you, can you do it? Can you surround that, that kind of central player that air that with, with non-shooters because the city, city has gone primarily extra creators right now. right now. It seems, it seems to be I'm just curious, curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, that's, um, I think it's a, an interesting question with that because I, I always think shooting is at a premium and any team and every team should want to have really good shooting around their star players, whether it's a big man like Embiid or whether it's guards like Giddy or, or SGA. I tend to believe in, in the rule of four is what I call it, that you should have four floor spacers on the floor at all times, that really you can get away with having one guy out there who doesn't shoot threes. So in the grand scheme of roster construction, you know, if you've got one rim-rolling big man who doesn't operate very well with the ball in his hands and just needs to operate out of the pick and roll or everything is near the basket, then you probably need all four other guys to be able to shoot on the floor that if your your guard is somebody who's not a very good shooter and, and teams are going to go underneath ball screens against you you probably need other guys who can really space the floor well so that the lane is a little bit more open for him to try to maneuver and weave his way in there that it i call it the rule of four it's something that i just think is really important in the in the nba these days you know golden state went small in those NBA Finals series against Cleveland, to me, not necessarily because they had a marginal advantage with Draymond Green at the five and, and really needed to go smaller, but they just needed more skill and spacing on the floor. That playing him along with Andrew Bogut or Kevon Looney in a lot of those lineups is really hard to do. Golden State's so different because Steph Curry and Klay Thompson account for like six shooters on the floor with the type of gravity that they command. But I think the more spacing you have is always going to be the better. I just think that the the simpler that you can keep the game for everybody else as soon as your star player commands to is really where those those advantages get leveraged to a team's advantage. That, you know, if you're getting trapped as a ball handler, just have simple floor spacing and a really good short roll big who can make the right read four on three. If you're double teamed in the post, you don't need a ton of fancy cutters or you know weak side screening actions. Just stand on the perimeter, 
and have a bunch of guys who can shoot it and also attack closeouts that effectively space the floor and punish defenses for over collapsing on the lane. That's my take. It's interesting because I would agree with that, um, which makes this Oklahoma city project just that much more crazy because to this point, they have never ever in the first round valued shooting. So and now they're going to be right in the range where maybe Jordan Hawkins is available, Grady Dick, yep. Taylor Hendricks could be a floor spacing option. It's it, it's so interesting. I don't know what they're going to do. You'd think at some point, again, too many cooks in the kitchen, they're going to value three-point shooting, but we haven't seen it yet. Uh, and then my my last point regarding the playoffs is this is when teams need options and flexibility the most. There is simply no more room really in the NBA, but especially in the playoffs for one dimensional players Uh, lineups are more sound and basketball is just generally being played at a, a much higher level so much so that teams need to be like you talked about earlier, thinking about this when drafting guys, what does Colby Jones offer when the going gets tough? How much offensive versatility does Julian Strother provide in the playoffs? Can shooters bring anything in the ways of defense or attacking closeouts or, or anything additional to the game and even more than that, just even more than just generally being versatile, you can't have glaring holes to your game either, like we talked about earlier, because in the playoffs, that's going to be exploited to the maximum amount. Jordan Poole is getting sat in the second half of their most important game of the season because when the shot's not falling, what does he offer outside of scoring and playmaking? Um, not only should individual teams have options and counters to certain play styles, but from a draft perspective, we've got to start looking at players that do too. Are they viable on the court when the paint is packed? What do they offer when the shots aren't falling? So it's an age old question, but we're still seeing mistakes being made in real time in, I mean, the 2023 playoffs. And it, it's so hard from a drafting perspective when you just evaluate individual talent in a vacuum, because so many times you're going to want to find that I don't want to necessarily use Jordan Poole because I think he's genuinely very helpful for the Golden State Warriors with the offensive punch that he provides. But guys who don't have the same type of versatility but are super talented like Poole, when you're drafting in the mid to late first round and you see a guy as tantalizing like that left on the table, but you also see, you know what, I could have a guy who I don't think has that high of a ceiling or that that crazy impact that he can have, but he just fits the the versatile mold that we might need a little bit more. How do you leave that skilled player on the table, particularly knowing you now he could turn into a 20, 25 point per game scorer. And then the owner of that team is probably coming after you and saying, you know, why weren't you higher on this? Like, it's a really hard thing to do is to value fit over just talent that kinds of kind of pops off the page, but that versatility to adjust through a best of seven series to counter different teams and schemes that they throw at you is really important. I I think it all comes back to IQ because the guys who know how to do that, not just are are talented enough or or versatile skill-wise to do it, but who know how to do it are the ones that you trust and see on the floor. And and the one guy I'll, I'll kind of point out here is Josh Hart for the New York Knicks. Like he is the ultimate glue guy role player because he does so many great things for the Knicks. If you were to ask me what his number one skill is, I don't know if I could give you a real answer for a guy like Josh Hart. It's just being able to play basketball and stay on the floor no matter what. He guards different positions. He makes the right read offensively, can knock down shots. He's a really strong, talented finisher at the bucket. 
Same thing goes for Derek White for the Boston Celtics. Like, if you're going to be a guard in particular, you've got to have that versatility to do different things, be able to survive on the floor on both ends in versatile schemes. I think it's a really good point, Derek. And Jordan Poole probably wasn't either of our best uh, either of our best options to pick from there because the Golden sure. State Warriors have the luxury of having one of the best developmental track right. records of all time. But yeah, it, it's an interesting question nonetheless. Yeah, and look, I, I think maybe another guy to bring up in that conversation would be like Tyler Hero for Miami, where very offensively minded, but you also struggle with some of the, the coverages and the schemes you can execute when you play him, particularly with other smaller guys down in South Beach. There's just so many things that you're handcuffed for on the defensive end in the best of seven series. The, the last point that I'll make, Derek, is very much related to perimeter defense. And it's something you and I talked about real briefly before hopping on here, but it's the value of having a one-on-one perimeter defensive stopper. I think that's been a theme and, and something that's stuck out to me a little bit more during the playoffs, the competitiveness of guys like Russell Westbrook and Davion Mitchell to show up in clutch, clutch time and put the clamps on other elite scorers one-on-one is really important. I've always believed in kind of a three pillars approach to drafting that you are always looking for the three main cogs that hold up your structure. And then you fill in the gaps with the right high IQ versatile role players who bring out the best in those three pillars. But a lot of times those pillars and and those foundational pieces for organizations are one-on-one scorers. At the end of the day, that's the, the most important thing in basketball. Do you have one guy who, even if he's defended really well, can just put the ball in the bucket in a late clock one-on-one situation. And the counter for that is elite perimeter defense in one-on-one situations. And what we've seen from a guy like Russell Westbrook to, you know, save the Los Angeles Clippers that game in crunch crunch time from Davion Mitchell to hound Steph Curry in an impossible situation to find success in the way that he moves on the perimeter I think that when it comes to feel on the offensive end, it's always going to be incredibly important, but I'm turning into much more of a toolsy evaluator on the defensive end. Guys who just have that athletic burst and quickness to stay with guys, challenge with their length and make it look easy. Not necessarily what the metrics are or the polish says from them when they're 17, 18, 19, 20 years old in high school and college coming into the pros. It's such an interesting dilemma because Everything we've talked about this pod in terms of basketball IQ and processing speed and all that good decision-making, if you throw all of that out the window, you're left with Lugans Dort, who should not be on this Thunder roster. Like When you watch them, he drives me crazy because you'll see beautiful skip pass, beautiful outlet pass, and then Lou Dort ends up with the basketball. And it's never anything beautiful. Obviously, you can talk about the defensive end of the court, stuff like that, beautiful. But... By all accounts, like he should not be on this Thunder roster, and yet that's something that Sam Presti, someone I would trust with my life at this point, values highly, apparently. So it's so interesting. He's such a niche player. He's really become almost kind of a scapegoat for some of the fan base whenever things go bad. Well, Lou Dort shot four for 17. That wasn't great. But he's so niche. He he plays this superstar stopper role. It's it's almost like a cycle. Like the fan base gets down on him, and then he goes out there and he takes Luca one on one and blocks his shot. And he's Lou Dort, Dortcher Chamber. You see all the memes. 
and stuff like that, I think is so, so valuable in the playoffs. If you can throw a guy out there who for 42 minutes a game can just stick to a superstar like glue, obviously you're not going to stop them. You're not going to completely negate their impact, but if you can even one or two plays make a difference, it, it can end up being the ball game and, and in the playoffs, that's, that's everything. Yeah. Look, basketball is a game of makes and misses, right? And sometimes the right process doesn't always lead to the desired results. You can get so many good looks and maybe it's just not your night. But I think basketball in the postseason is played in a best of seven series because over that period of time, you're going to get the outcome that teams deserve. And the shooting variation is going to find its way back down to earth. In order to win those matchups and really put yourself in a best position, you need versatility across the board. You need scheme versatility to take away different star players or offenses that others have. You need scheme versatility on offense to attack many different types of defense. You need high IQ players who can leverage the advantages that are created for them. And you need really talented players who create those advantages by either getting into the lane or drawing double teams. You need floor spacing to be able to keep up with your opponents in the way that you shoot the basketball. And you probably just need some creativity to be able to get all of the pieces to fit together. And that creativity doesn't start on April 15th when we get to the playoffs. That creativity starts in the draft, in the summers when you're constructing these rosters with your front offices and all of your scouts to try to figure out who should you sign. And it really starts with the evaluations and the work that guys like you and I are trying to do to figure out who showcases some of these skills. I will end on this here, Derek, and then I'm going to toss the platform over to you to, to spew any words of wisdom that you have. But I try my hardest not to lock in opinions of college prospects until this time of year, not necessarily until their season is wrapped up, but until I've been able to watch a week or two of playoff basketball and remind myself, oh shit, this is the intensity, the speed of the game and what is required to be able to be successful and win here. And games one and two are great opportunities for us to see the speed and intensity. Now, as we move deeper into the series, we see the adjustments, we see where versatility comes into play. And I'm just so glad that playoff basketball is back. Derek, any last thoughts here? And before you go, make sure you let the people know where they can find you and what you have going on. Well, I had a psalm prepared, but I think I'm going to skip that and go ahead and just just plug my work. You can find the bulk of it over at draftdigest.com. Uh, we've assembled, honestly, just an insane team over there that puts out tons of content every single day. I'm really proud of it, really proud of all the work they do internationally, collegiately, high school, everything. They're amazing. And then you touched on it earlier. I've sort of been doing as a side project stuff on YouTube at Derek slash Parker, uh, and I've got stuff coming out weekly over there. It's great stuff. It's must watch uh, for all of the boxing one fans. I think you'll find a lot of similarities in the way that Derek and I try to break down prospects and, and really have that, that nuanced eye there. If you haven't already, make sure you, you like, share, subscribe, do everything you can to support the boxing one. We appreciate all your support. Go watch some playoff basketball, hype up players. Don't tear them down. And until next time, we'll see you later. 